So we're continuing in the book of Acts. And I'm calling today's word the enigma of hope. We saw at the end of chapter 22, after the Turkish Jews had tried to kill Paul and started a riot, the Roman centurion rescued Paul from the angry mob and he gave Paul permission to speak to all the Jews from the steps of the temple where the crowd would gather. And so he speaks in Hebrew. We get to Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen to me as I offer my defence. He then recounts his religious pedigree as a Pharisee and his dramatic conversion to becoming a follower of Jesus. The Jews fly into another rage and they tear at their clothes and take Paul to the Roman barracks to be scourged with whips. And when Paul declares his Roman citizenship, the Roman commander puts a stop again to the treatment of Paul. He knows that he can't be scourged and he was respectful of Paul's Roman citizenship and he was also confused by the behaviour of the Jews. He didn't understand why Paul was being accused. So he released him and commanded that Paul be tried by the chief priests and the council. So we're now going to chapter 23. And that begins with the council trial. And Paul declares to them all that his conscience is perfect before God. And that causes such offence to the high priest Ananias that he orders that Paul be slapped in the mouth. And Paul yells at him, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. Who are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? When Paul was told that Ananias was the high priest, he apologised and said he didn't know that. And he also knew that the scriptures said you should not speak evil of your leaders. So Paul had to gain control of the situation. So he thought he was quick on his feet and he knew what he was going to say to the council group. You see, some of them were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. And only the Pharisees believed in angels and the spirit and the resurrection of the dead, which was Paul's message. So Paul said that as a Pharisee himself, he was being put on trial for simply believing in the resurrection of the dead. This ended up with the Pharisees and the Sadducees fighting with one another because of the Sadducees' unbelief in all of those things. They didn't really have it. A revelation of spiritual things. So, the Roman commander then took Paul again and put him in prison, but for his own safety, because the mob were going to tear him apart again. And that night, the Lord stood beside Paul and said, Don't worry, Paul. Just as you have told the people about me here in Jerusalem, you will also do that in Rome. The next day... Forty Jews took a vow to kill Paul and they persuaded the council to bring Paul back in for further questioning and they were going to get him on the way. But Paul's nephew heard of their ambush and he went and tipped off the commander, the Roman commander, who called two of his officers and ordered him to get 470 soldiers, spearmen and mounted cavalry, including a horse for Paul, to get him safely to Governor Felix in Caesarea. So God was on the job for Paul. <laughs> so we get into chapter 24. 
and that starts with this governor, Governor Felix, organising a new trial before the Jewish leaders in Caesarea. They were not going to let Paul go. Another trial. Ananias, the high priest, arrives from Jerusalem with some of the Jewish leaders and they immediately weigh in on how Paul was a troublemaker, inciting the Jews throughout the entire world to riots and trying to defile the temple and causing rebellion against the Roman Empire back in Jerusalem. They blamed Paul for confusing the Roman commander who forcefully disrupted their punishment of Paul at that time back there in Jerusalem where they complained about the commander defending his appeal because he wanted to be tried by Roman law. Then it was Paul's turn because the trial was on. Felix was there, the governor of Caesarea. And Paul told Felix that with all of his knowledge of Jewish affairs, that for so many years he would have come to know that Paul had never incited a riot in any synagogue, any temple. And these men could never prove the things that they accused him of doing. He then denies all the charges and repeats all that he did was defend himself for believing that the dead will rise again. Felix knew that Christians didn't start riots, so he refused to condemn Paul, put him in custody, instructing the guards to treat him gently and to allow his friends to visit him and bring him gifts to make his stay more comfortable. Isn't that nice? Felix. That was actually a political agenda of Felix who thought he might gain financially by getting a bribe from Paul or his friends for Paul's freedom. In the meantime, Paul gets a chance to now preach to Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla. So Paul speaks about Jesus. He speaks about the resurrection. But when he gets to talking about obeying God and the judgment that was to come, Felix became terrified and sent Paul away, still giving audience to Paul from time to time, with the hope of a bribe, which never came. And because Felix wanted to gain favour with the Jews, he left Paul in prison for two more years. Then Felix was succeeded as governor by another governor called Portius Festus. So, chapter 25 starts with Festus arriving in Caesarea and making a quick visit to Jerusalem, which he probably wished he hadn't because the first thing now on his to-do list was to respond to the disgruntled Jewish leaders who were still very unhappy with the way that Felix had conducted the trial of Paul. And they wanted another trial. And they wanted Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem. The Bible says that their plan was to waylay Paul and kill him. But Festus told them to come to Caesarea the following week. So the Jews arrived from Jerusalem and began again hurling accusations, which they couldn't prove. And Paul again denied all charges of having opposed Jewish laws or of desecrating the temple or of rebelling against the Roman government. He said to Festus, I am innocent. I appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisers and then replied, very well, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. A few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his wife Bernice for a visit, he came to see Festus. 
And Festus outlined to King Agrippa the case that the Jews had against Paul. And Festus said he was perplexed as to how to decide a case like this because everything was still in the balance. He told Agrippa that he'd asked Paul whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem, but that Paul had appealed to Caesar. Festus told Agrippa that he'd ordered Paul back to jail until he could arrange to get him to Rome. King Agrippa said he'd like to hear what Paul had to say. So Festus arranged another hearing and brought Paul to the court. When King Agrippa and Bernice arrived with great pomp and ceremony, Festus outlined the case against Paul to Agrippa and to the Jews and to all the crowd. So chapter 26 starts with Agrippa hearing Paul again preaching about Jesus, the Messiah who would suffer and die for the forgiveness of our sins and would rise again from the dead to bring light to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. This was so annoying to Festus that he shouted at Paul and said, Paul, you are insane. All your studying has damaged your mind. Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. And King Agrippa knows who I am and what I've done, for it was not done in a corner. And King Agrippa, I know you believe in the prophets. You see, Agrippa was related to Herod's dynasty and they were Jewish. Agrippa interrupted Paul and said, after saying what you just said, do you expect me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, I would hope that you and everyone here might become a Christian like me, except for these chains. Then the king, the governor, and Bernice, and all the others stood and left. And as they talked it over afterwards, they agreed. This man hasn't done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, we could have set him free. If only he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now Paul would likely have had a hope of converting Jews with the gospel of grace, converting governors and kings and emperors for the kingdom of God. That would perhaps influence all the nations of the world. You can imagine that inside of him before it all started. Paul's hope could have easily turned into disappointment in his dismal journey through those last few uninspiring chapters of Acts, with one contentious encounter after another, being resisted and rejected and mocked and scorned. But Paul had an even better kind of hope. So what I'm talking about today is the enigma of hope, the puzzle, the conundrum, the riddle, if you like. We saw in the previous study in Acts the paradox, that's another word for it, of God's sovereignty and man's free will. How that God sovereignly takes us in his way, but graciously accompanies and leads us on our way. And this undergirds the new kind of hope that I'm talking about here, the kind of hope that Paul writes to us about, the enigma of hope in the glory of God. That's the hope. 
which is far higher than our human idea of hope, which looks into the future with an expectation of seeing things work out the way we hope they will because of our faith and faithfulness and good planning. I'm not talking about silly hopes. We can't live without hope. But the problem is our disappointments. So we live with hope and with disappointment because of not knowing what to expect or hope for with certainty. The only certain hope is the hope that God has for us. And Paul would certainly not be disappointed with his revelation of that hope to us, which still speaks to us and to all the world 2,000 years later. A different kind of hope. He writes in Romans chapter 5, Through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, God's glory, meaning God on display in our lives, not us. Not only that, Paul continues to write, but we rejoice in our sufferings, and that means and includes our disappointments in our own hopes. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces a hope, and that hope does not disappoint us because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God plants a vision and a hope inside each one of us. It's his work to do that. It is his vision and his hope for us. And it does not disappoint us if we give our heart and mind to embracing that new and certain hope that God has for us. When he created you, there was a destiny there. And that was his hope. That hope for a, a, a doting parent upon the future of a child. It is what God is always himself achieving in us. That's what it is. He is always bringing us into his likeness. It is what God is always doing for us. He is always enriching our lives with his love and with all spiritual blessings. It is what God is always doing through us. He is imparting that love and blessing right on through us to all those in our world. That's God's hope towards each one of his children. And he is actively watching over his hope to be performed. There's something that we can do to realise his hope, and that is agree with it, believe it, and understand that it is actively coming towards us from God. Ordinary hope is we reach out into the future, reaching out into the future. I wish, I hope, I think I might have it this time. Uh, this hope comes to us and meets us here in the present, in our faith. There is a way we can position ourselves within God's certain hope that overcomes the future uncertainties and the lost hopes of the past. Those things only make us look around inside our heads. 
Why didn't it work? Why the disappointment? Probably nothing will work. What's the point? Round it goes. But this way, we can instead look out and see another horizon in our life that lets us find a deeper and a higher meaning in what God, in his vast creative power, is doing for us. Not looking inside, around. There's the horizon. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God makes everything beautiful in his time and he has placed eternity in the hearts of man. That word eternity in the Hebrew means horizon. He's placed that horizon in each one of us. He wants to stir and awaken that in us. The enigma hope lets God do the hoping for us. When he hopes, we can be certain that he has a certainty and he wants us to have the certainty that he is able to do that and that he's doing it in us, for us and through us. We rest in that certain hope and wait for that to come to us from God. There's something coming from God. His hope, and it is certain, for you. Will you take it? And in that inner stillness, we still move forward in faith with his word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But we do not create our own future with our own hope. God says that he creates that for us and we enter into it. This scripture from Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. When David was in the depths of despair, which is the opposite to hope, that's the exact opposite. All he could do was speak to his own soul. He looked inside, but he got sick of looking in there. He just got sick of it. It was all about lost hopes and disappointments and his failures. So he, he said, from where does my hope come? And he looked to the Lord, looking to the horizon, looked to the hills. He sees God's horizon where everything began to flow, even in the natural he knew that the hills, not like the desert of his soul, the hills had streams of water flowing. The hills had shade. But the horizon of those hills was a height that lifted his soul above his disappointments. He knew something was coming to him from that place. And he began to lift his eyes there with his thank you, with his gratitude began to magnify the Lord, not the problems, not the disappointments. Thank you, Lord. Amen.